Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to January the 28th, 2010, originally episode 366, The Missed Lessons of Major Disasters. And all of these rewinds while I'm away on the island in uh, Florida will be uh, from 2010, progressing through the year beginning in January, and I think the last one ends somewhere around October, November. I actually found 10 episodes because in my dismay trying to get out of here and with all the things that went on the week before I, I left, uh, I kind of screwed up in my head a little bit, and I was like, I'm going to be gone 10 days, I need 10 shows. Well, dummy, there's a weekend in there, so you need eight. Uh, so I had 10 picked out, and I put all 10 of them into a poll, and uh, put them on the uh, Facebook group and let people vote for the uh, the top ones, and uh, so this one made the cut. But I decided instead of playing them in, in the order of that they were voted for, to play them in order chronologically as they were published in the year of 2010. I thought this would be a good look back to 2010. Uh, I selected this one because it it is just as relevant today as it was when I published it originally. If you think about some of the stuff that I'll talk about here, I talk about going back from that time. So this is going back, you know, 10 years or more from the time this originally happened eight years ago. So now we're like 25, 28 years ago. The L.A. riots, the California earthquake, That's I'm talking about the one where the one overpass collapsed on the other in the middle of a World Series was going on when that happened. Um, Hurricane Andrew which is so long ago that I was in the Army when that hit. It disrupted our mail to uh, Panama because our mail went through an APO in Miami. Uh, and then I brought it up to things that were more current at the time, like Ike and Rita and Katrina, and things like the Fort Worth and Arlington tornado uh, breakout that we lived through, the Mississippi floods in the 1990s, Tropical Storm Fay in Jacksonville, which really didn't even get any attention when it happened. Uh, people just really didn't pay attention to that. It was a major flooding event. Uh, they disrupted, you know, hundreds and thousands and damn near millions of lives and, you know, killed a lot of people and caused a lot of problems, but it wasn't media sexy. And that's a, that's a big theme that you'll hear in today's show, and it's still the same case. The media is not our friend in these events. The media looks for the worst of the worst of the worst and reports that. They don't really do a lot to help coordinate, even though they have the ability that they could be doing that. All they are doing is trying to get the thing that will get the most eyeballs on the screen. And the bigger thing is how quick we forget these lessons. Because if you think about it, it wasn't that long ago, it was less than a year, that we had our personally developed nonprofit response team, CAC, Citizens Assisting Citizens, responding to Hurricane Harvey. But how many people do you think that live right in the greater Houston area have done nothing since they've moved back in? If they if they got off okay, like their house wasn't completely destroyed by flooding, have done nothing at all to be prepared. How many people that watch the TV with you know white knuckles gripping their remote, thinking do I change to the other channel or not, and thinking what's going to happen, have for forgotten? And I, I mentioned in this episode the earthquakes in Haiti. 
And I, I believe I say something to the effect in this, this episode of give it a week or two and it'll be a footnote again. Because when I did this episode, it was raging on the TV every day. Haiti, Haiti, Haiti. Oh, look, we found something shiny to point at. And the reason I, I decided to bring this episode back is because of two reasons. One, the, the big disasters are the wake-up calls that we're so quick to go back to sleep from. So I thought it would be a good wake-up call for everybody. But then the overriding theme of this episode is actually, do you understand how much worse this could be? The, the reality is in these massive disasters, there's always a place not that far away that people have supplies and people have a place to sleep and first responders come from and people come to help you. And even though most of the time in these big disasters, people are on their own for three days and people expect that like, well, as soon as the rain stops, they'll cut. No, that's not how it works. A major disaster, a, a, an incident commander sets up a base, and they spend two to three days getting prepared before they start sending people in, because dead rescuers save no lives. And, and, and we take for granted that whenever there is a disaster, there will always be kind of this island that is the disaster, and then this place that other people can come from to help us. And if we ever get into something that's truly national or global in, in scope, a, a true financial meltdown, one that makes 2000, 2008, 2009 look like a, a joke, you know, the, the, we, we're, we're back to things like, oh, I don't know, the way things were for the Confederacy toward the end of the Civil War. You don't think that can happen here. You're not a student of history. Or we have some sort of global pandemic or something like that. Then, then where's the safe space to come from? That's a big theme in this today, too. So this is kind of a wake-up call. Because many of us, we get complacent with all the homesteading stuff. And that's great. And it's a big part of being self-sufficient. But if you don't have that stockpile of some stuff to get through at least a couple months, if you don't have that reserve energy, those backup batteries, etc., If you don't have that backup water supply, if you don't have that backup fuel supply, if you don't have those backup medical supplies, if you don't have the basic preparedness stuff in place, and something happens, and it's more than three days, are you going to be okay? And there's no guarantee you're going to be okay no matter what you do. But what we're trying to do is stack the deck in our favor. So think about that as we go through this episode again from January 28, 2010, uh, a little over eight years ago. And remember, while Rewind episodes are commercial-free, you can always support the Survival Podcast simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Here we go, back to January 28th, 2010. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where you scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man feel the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't coming to you from Arlington, Texas today as most days and uh, today we're going to talk about 
the missed lessons of major disasters, the things that we, you know, we look at a major disaster and we say, oh, look at that, and then we talk about it a little bit, and then we kind of forget about it, and, you know, everybody was talking about Haiti last week, and not quite as much anymore. Give it two more weeks, and it'll be a footnote in history, even though there'll still be people suffering. And we'll think we've learned something, but I'm going to go over some things with you today that maybe we're not learning. And this is not going to be about Haiti. This is not going to be about what is it, 15 years ago when Hurricane Andrew hit uh, Homestead Air Force Base. This isn't going to be about eight years ago or whatever it was when Katrina hit. This isn't going to be about 20 years ago in the L.A. riots. This is going to be about all of those things and, and taking a new look at them and understanding the real message of them and what they mean to us as a people, as a society, and as modern survivalists. And I think there's a lot of stuff that's missed, especially by the mainstream media, who in these situations, I would say 95% is not our friend. There is some use for the media in these things to get information out to people, but other than that, they pretty much compound and aggravate these situations. They do not help. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I think it's one that's it's glossed over by both media and our survivalist-minded community as well. I think that a lot of times we look at these disasters and we even look down our nose a little bit uh, of the people out there, but there's the fundamental reality that we can be overwhelmed. And I'm going to point out to you today as we go through this some ironic vulnerabilities that you may have as a prepper. Some situations where a lot of the disasters that we do see occur, uh, you may be well prepared for, but some of them, uh, all your preps may be for naught. Where a much larger disaster, a much bigger disaster, you actually might be able to, to fend off a little bit better, at least at first. The long term, it would be bad for all of us. I'm going to take away some of the arrogance today, hopefully. Hopefully, I'm also going to bring everybody to a bit of a reality check. And on the other side, I don't want it to be a downer. I also want it to empower you and make you realize how important the things that you're doing are. But I want you to take some type of a situation-critical look at your preps today and say, what can I do to increase my redundancy? That's going to be my goal as we go through today's show. So I think one of the first things that we, we lose sight of in these big disasters, especially when they're hurricanes, or over in the Pacific, typhoons, they call them, these big storms that move in. Uh, and many other disasters that occur, if they're not like the Haitian earthquake, that everything's beautiful and then it's just there. Uh, if they're, if they're anything with time for evacuation to occur, uh, we look at them and go, look how overwhelmed the system is. Look how few first responders are actually able to get out and help people and things like that. Well, here's what we're missing. In those situations, in most instances, there's actually more first responders per individual than there was before the disaster. Because when evacuation orders are issued, even with Hurricane Katrina and everybody that got a bad rap for not getting the hell out when they were told to get the hell out, and trust me, there's plenty of blame on people that didn't leave when they were told to leave. But most people did leave. That's the reality. In, in, in New Orleans, with Hurricane Katrina, most of the people did leave. There were a, a large group of people, but come on, folks. I've been to the Superdome. You can't fit the population of New Orleans in there. It wasn't like the whole city went there. So we had this situation, where, and it, why is that important? How do we get to more first responders per individual? Because most of the firemen, the policemen, 
the doctors, and all the first responders, paramedics, most of them hunker down. Most of them are called into it, what's considered a safe location, to wait for the disaster to pass, and then they're distributed out to do what they can to help. So what happens is most of the first responders don't leave. Most of the individuals do leave. You have a higher ratio of first responder to individual, and we're still overwhelmed. And what we should be taking away from that is when we do have a disaster, like an earthquake, or anything that is, let's say, impossible to know is coming with any real advanced warning, let's say a terrorist strike, terrorists ever actually get their hands on a nuclear bomb and set it off in a major city, or several major cities, or anything that would be acute and instantaneous is much more difficult to deal with than a storm that we can forecast. Even things like an ice storm where most people don't evacuate. At least most people want a serious ice storm is coming. I don't mean a little bit of ice and snow and there's a few wrecks. I mean the disaster level ice storms. The ones that start dropping trees and dropping power lines and dropping power towers. In all of those situations. Most people go home. Most people do at least a little. That's why the store shelves go empty a day before it happens. People stock up a little bit. People grab some firewood. And we still have a situation where even though the people didn't leave, they pretty much all got home to shelter in place and do the best they can with what they have, and we still have first responders overwhelmed. And that is still with some level of forecasting. So what we have to take away from that is that there are disasters where we will have no warning, like Haiti, like the 1990s big earthquake in California, where the double overpass fell on top of itself crushing people, driving through traffic, where more people were saved that day by the World Series than any other event because so many people were home watching it instead of out in the streets. We don't know what's going to happen, but what we do know is that what we've seen from prior disasters teaches us that even in the most ideal circumstances, 80% of a city leave. 100% or 90% of first responders remain. First responders can't handle the situation when it's that big. That should put us in touch with some reality of what happens if it's bigger than a Katrina, bigger than an L.A. earthquake, bigger than a Hurricane Andrew, bigger than a Haitian earthquake, bigger than a tsunami. All of these things that we've seen have been relatively limited in scope. We'll get to that, though, in a bit. The next thing I think we need to realize is how critical it is for us to do the basic fundamentals that are necessary for emergency survival planning. The biggest shortages in these situations are always food, water, shelter, and medical supplies. If you said to me, what are the the, the things I need to focus on the most, making sure you have food, water, shelter, and medical supplies. And that might might include portable shelters, tents. As long as the disaster is localized, I'd rather sit out in a campground somewhere for four or five days than in a shelter if I have the means to do that. It's not always feasible. It's not always a good plan. We could do a whole show on why people that think they're going to go live in the woods when the shit hits the fan are crazy, nuts, and they're going to end up dead there. But for the acute existing disaster, the short disaster, the hurricane, the things that cause you to have to evacuate from a place of danger to a place of safety, it's a reasonable short-term solution. Ensuring that your local shelter, your, your home that you live in every day, is as resistant 
to the things that are most likely to affect your area as possible makes sense. Don't go build a cinder block home in an, in an earthquake zone. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Now, here's the other side of that. We can't say that to the people in Haiti. The first thing people were thinking when an earthquake started in Haiti was, we don't get earthquakes in Haiti. It's not an earthquake belt. It's not a place where there generally is earthquakes. We almost have to ask ourselves, what the hell happened there? But if you live somewhere out in the, the west western United States along the San Andreas Fault and you build a new home, you know, you might want to think about the fact that the ground shakes out there an awful lot. Do you even want to live there? You know, we have to think about that, too. Are there places in the world, are there places throughout our nation that are pretty much undesirable locations due to their risk factor? If you live there, does it make sense to reassess your life and move now? If you're starting out and you're thinking about where to go because you're not staying where you are, should you consider that? I think you should. I'm not saying don't go to California. There's some beautiful things about living on the on the West Coast. There really are. Um, but California's a place I wouldn't go right now. That government will be broke before our federal government's broke. Uh, that's a socialist state. You might as well move to Poland, I guess, or, or probably more free in Poland right now. That's up to you. But I do think you should assess both the economic and the natural situation of any place before you go there. I don't think people think about that when they see a big disaster. They just go, wow, look at that. But think about how it applies to your life. But again, the biggest shortage is food, water, shelter, medical supplies. So if you focus on those, you can mitigate a lot of the problems that you would have. The next thing that we, I think we get it in this community, but society as a whole does not get this. That if you put people into a situation where enough of their systems of support are gone, okay, and and whatever means they have to provide for themselves run out, the minute that that happens, not everybody will do it, but enough people will do it that law and order will break down. In any disaster situation, we are going to have a law enforcement problem on our hands. It's going to happen. It's not maybe. It's not possibly. It's not potentially it is, it will happen, and it will happen every time. The only question will be, how big and how bad will it be? And there's something that we need to understand about the socio-mentality of individuals in these harsh situations, and what happens when the first one or two people act in a way that is inconsistent with society and get away with it, that's when the whole melee starts. That's when everything breaks down. What I mean by that is when I was a kid uh, and growing up in Pennsylvania uh, in, in my high school years, we used to wait in the wintertime, man, for, for spring to come and for the first day of trout season. That was a big deal in Pennsylvania, first day of trout season. Now, the state would go out for like two weeks before the season and stock all the local creeks and lakes and fisheries with, you know, brook trout and brown trout and rainbow trout. So those fish would be in there and in large numbers for like two weeks before the season would open. And, you know, if you fished for them, if you even went to those places, and, you know, you couldn't fish in the areas that were stocked, period, for that two-week period. And then the first day, it wasn't like midnight you could run out and throw your line in the water. It was always 8 a.m. 8 a.m. was when you could start fishing. So everybody would get up and go out, and there'd be, you know, on some creeks you could look down and see, you know, 20 people if you could see far enough both directions on both sides of the creek. Everybody standing around, kind of scoped out their little spot, waiting for 8 o'clock, drinking coffee, talking to their kids, whatever, checking their watch, checking their watch, checking their watch, about five minutes to 8. It would always happen. 
somebody would throw in, and everybody would look at each other and wait for, for like a half a half a minute. He got real efficient. Put in his creel. Everybody'd look. Where's the game warden? If the game warden showed up, and I had saw him one time, everybody just stood there like, "No, I'm not gonna do it." What? Not me. Not me. No, no, no. Don't look at me. Right? Game warden worked right, right the guy to take it while he's writing a ticket. Everybody starts throwing in because eight o'clock actually comes. So he was nailed for going early. Every other time that I saw it happen, it would be like 30 seconds, no game warden, and you'd see lines up and down the creek go in. Even though it was technically illegal, the second that people knew that it was socially acceptable and no one was going to do anything about it, everybody broke the law. Now, this is a minor infraction law. We're talking about 90 seconds early, right? Not 90 seconds, 120 seconds to, to 300 seconds early to pull a fish out of the creek. But as soon as everybody does it, it became okay. Well, this is what happens when we have breakdowns of law and order in these disaster scenarios. One guy goes and bashes a window out of a store and pulls food out, takes as much as he can carry, and he runs off. Well, people around him that normally would never do this look at it, and they wait for something to happen. And nothing happens, except their stomach growls. So they go, shit, i I, I got to feed my family. So they go in the store, too, and they take a little bit. And then... Everybody does it. And then they start fighting over it. And then when law, or law, law enforcement shows up and tries to prevent it, by that time, the mentality of the mob has become that we're entitled to this. This is our food for our survival. We need it. And they're the enemy. They're trying to take it away from us. And the same thing happens with people stealing color TVs and game stations and all those other things. Like They don't need them, but the same mentality I am now entitled to this. This is the way the society is. That mental switch happens so fast, especially in highly dense population areas, that it's scary. We should learn about that. We should understand that. And we should realize that that is something that in major disasters we will contend with, especially if we get one that's national in scope. The next thing is, and this is so important that we understand this one, as law enforcement organizations and as responders move into an area and begin to try to put the pieces back together, they generally do what's most necessary and easiest to get done first. What does that usually result in? Well, it usually results in the first thing we're going to do is quell the potential for more uprising, contain the uprising, and then put down the uprising when we have lawlessness. So what often happens is, you'll have a sphere of relative calm around a center of chaos. And out in that outer sphere, that outer ring, will be people that have decided, you're not getting in my home, you're not taking what I have, whatever I have is still somewhat put together, I'm a law-abiding citizen, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to help myself, my family, and my neighbor, and if you come here and you try to take what I have, you're leaving in a horizontal dirt nap position. And you're going to spend the rest of your existence as a, as, a, as a corpse, horizontal and under the ground. I can't be more clear than that. That those people, those law-abiding people, often become the first targets of law enforcement. That you, the good prepper, sitting in your home that was far enough outside of ground zero of whatever happened to your house is still standing, with your food, with your preps, with your medical supplies, being a positive impact on your community, but with a means of self-defense, 
will often become the targets of your very government that's supposed to be there to help you. Instead of going to where the biggest danger is, they'll try to make sure nothing happens here first as a containment uh, policy. All you have to do is look at Hurricane Katrina for this one. They went around and they took guns that were family heirlooms. You can go to YouTube and search for Katrina gun confiscation, and you'll find a, a laundry list of videos. You'll see law enforcement officers that were put in these positions that had no choice. They were told, you will go seize these guns. And you'll see some of them on the verge of crying when they tell their stories about, I didn't want to do this. Some of these people that I had to do this to, I knew them. I didn't want to make these people defenseless. We had no choice. We were ordered to do it. And that's why I think if you're a law enforcement officer, if you are a soldier, prior or active duty, I don't care. Get your ass over to Oath Keeper's website today. Read that site and take that oath. And if you're ever put in that position where you're given an unlawful, unconstitutional order, follow your freaking oath, man. That guy shouldn't have been crying. What he should have said is, I'm not going to do it. I'm not doing it. And you're not doing it either if you're with me. That's what should have happened, but it didn't happen. And in most instances, it will not happen. I'm not going to feel comfortable in this country. Until the majority of our law enforcement and our military take their ass to Oath Keepers and realize the oath that they actually swore and what the oath was sworn to. Your oath was not sworn to your government, for God's sakes. Your oath was sworn to the people that you're there to protect and serve and to the Constitution that limits your government. That's where your oath goes. And if you're a state-level law enforcement officer, then it goes to the state's Constitution. But overseeing that state's constitution is our federal constitution, our federalist system of government. This says there's certain things that will not be done to people. And when you're given an order that is unconstitutional, you should not comply with it. I believe that. But they're going to comply. And the law-abiding good citizen will become a target. And what does that mean? Does that mean just run away? Does that mean that you... Don't do the right things and just let yourself be a victim. No, what it means is you do the right things, but in these situations you keep your mouth shut and your head down when it comes to things that could make you a bigger target. If you're armed, only show that you're armed when it's necessary to defend what you have. Until the looters are on your street, keep your gun hidden. If you have lots of food, take a little bit of it when you're going to share with your neighbor. Don't be walking around with it like you're a relief effort. I think most people listening to the show would understand that, but it's important that we think about it. It's one of the main things that threatens us in these situations is our own, supposedly, the people that are there to help us. And it's not the individual. It's the apparatus behind the individual. That's why I'm saying one more time, if you are a law enforcement officer, if you are a soldier, a sailor, an airman, marine, coast guard, if you are anybody called to serve this nation or a state within this nation, is a first responder that may be given orders to do things that you may not want to do, that may violate the constitution of this nation, go to Oath Keepers, learn about it today. I can't be more clear. Let's move on from there before I make this a show about Oath Keepers only. The next thing you need to know is that media loves hardship, blame, and is never part of the, never part of the solution. The biggest thing that our media looks for in a disaster, the worst part of the disaster, you see it here in Dallas when there's a tornado. It'd be like a little tornado, right? And, and it, it ends up not, you know, what we should be saying is, boy, we got lucky. Hey, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, 
We had a really bad storm today. We got lucky. The tornado touched down in a fairly sparse populated area. It took out one dude's barn, and that was it, and everybody's okay. So keep keep being prepared to deal with tornadoes that come, but this was the, we got off with this one, and, and we're lucky. No. They have a freaking helicopter flying a 360-degree circle around that one barn. Look at the disaster. Look at what. So when you give them something like Katrina, when you give them something like Haiti, when you give them something like, I think it was the 92 earthquake or the 90 earthquake in, in, in California, when you give them a Hurricane Andrew, when you give them a tsunami, they're like salivating dogs and they will always make it worse than it is. Because they want to outsell the other salivating dog that's making it worse than it is. And they will always focus on the worst aspects of it. And they will not help. And the things that they, when they start blaming people and putting pressure on people, they're not doing it to help. Never be misled by the media in a disaster. The media in a disaster, the only function that they have that you can rely on, is to basically tell you where things are happening and sort of what's going on there. Don't put too much faith in it. Make sure you have a means to tie into the media, especially things like emergency alert services. But when you see, look at the disaster and the hardship and these people don't care, and they're full of shit. Don't waste your mental energy on those idiots. And that could be applied to everything, folks, with the media. Politics, economics, there is no truth in our media today. It is twisted lies. It's not a conspiracy. They're selling to people that don't want the truth. So they give those people what they want. Please remember that. Never forget it. The other thing I don't think we really understand when we look at, because of the media, this is why, because of the media, when we see Katrina, we see Andrew, we see the Haitian earthquake, we see the tsunami. The scope and size of the disasters that we've dealt with in the past 50 years has been very small. And you're saying, oh my God, Jack, how can you say that? The scope and size of the disaster from Hurricane Katrina ran from about Beaumont, Texas, into a few places in Alabama and Mississippi. And, oh, we don't. I gotta bring this up. Your media, back to my other point, didn't give a shit about those people, did it? All they cared about was the Superdome in New Orleans. They didn't care about the thousands and millions of people outside of New Orleans who had their lives destroyed with this storm. Just want to reinforce that point. But even that, if you look at that on a map, and then you go, well, how much of the rest of the United States was okay? 95%, 96, 97% of the landmass? Fine. No direct effect. That left 97% of the people in this country free to help 3%, and most people did something. Most people gave a buck when they checked out with their, at their grocery store. Most people did something. Tons of people got on airplanes, got in cars, got in vehicles, went down there to help. Yes, our government screwed up. There were people that were willing to help that were held back in their ability to help due to incompetence. But sooner or later, they got there and they helped. And it was still unbelievably tragic what went on. Right now, that's what's gone on in Haiti. Haiti's not 1% of the landmass on the planet. And everybody's going to help. Yes, the U.S. is always seems to be the one that leads the way into these things. But I'll tell you what. The Chinese are there helping. Because they remember. The Chinese aren't evil commie pinkos. They're people like you and me. 
I don't like their government, but I don't like my government either. But they sent people. The Chinese lost four people. They had a peacekeeping force. It was part of the UN peacekeeping force that the Chinese sent. Four of their men were killed. When the four of their men were killed, instead of blaming somebody, the Chinese sent four more men. My point is the whole world is trying to help Haiti right now. It's still not enough. It's two million people. It's less than 1% of the land mass. And it's a tiny piece of less than 1% of the land mass. Pretty much Port-au-Prince is the only place that's in bad shape right now. And we're still overwhelmed. I don't think people understand how small these disasters really are in the grand scope of things. If we compare that to, say, a mass coronal solar ejection that shuts down the electrical grid throughout the majority of the world. If we compare that, say, to a major, truly lethal pandemic with an infection rate of, let's say, 50% of those exposed and a death rate, let's say, as small as 5% of those who contract. A complete total collapse of the United States economy, which at this point isn't just possible, it's actually relatively probable at some point that we're going to have that unless some major things get changed. And I don't see them changing them. Do you? You know, I, I think we really don't get this. I think this might be the most critical point I have for you today. All of these things that you see that reinforce why you should prep are tiny, minuscule disasters compared to something that's national or global in scope. And sooner or later, we may have to deal with that. I hope we never do. But I damn sure want to be as prepared as I can if we ever have to be that prepared. Please take that away today and understand that everything that you've seen so far could be tiny in comparison to what we could have to deal with at some point. The next point I think is important to understand is your government is not necessarily evil in these situations. They do try to help. Plenty of people went in uh, with with government backing and from the government to try to help in all of these disasters. There's plenty of our troops that are in Haiti right now. There's plenty of people that are in Haiti right now that have volunteered, but if it wasn't for our government arranging for transportation and things like that and supplies, they wouldn't be able to go. There was a huge response of first responders in uh, California during the big earthquake. There's a huge response of the government and first responders when we had flooding in the plains back in the 90s as well. I don't know if people remember that. When the Mississippi crested its banks and flooded out half of middle America. And I'm not talking about the, the one that happened just a little bit ago up in Wisconsin. I'm talking about where it was pretty much from the Great Lakes down to, to, to Louisiana was flooded. That was around 94, 95. Tremendous responses there. And in all of these situations, there were also tremendous responses from the individuals that were affected, neighbors helping neighbors. That happens. It always happens. I just watched a special on the California earthquake, and I watched common citizens going out and pulling ladders off of, you know, air conditioning trucks, climbing up into rubble to help people out from underneath those that collapsed overpass. Not firemen. I saw plenty of firemen, too, but the average citizen. I saw it in every disaster I've ever examined. I've seen people, regular people like you and me, run into danger to help. On 9-11, first responders ran into the building. Fellow New Yorkers ran into the rubble, on the outskirts of the rubble, and picked other fellow New Yorkers up off the street and led them out because they were blinded from dust. 
humanity overall is good despite what we see from the worst of it. But the message in that is there were still people completely on their own in every one of these disasters. Your government, even if you're somewhere else, a foreign government, even if you're part of an international relief effort, multiple governments, and the people in the area will try to help you. And there's a damn good chance you'll still be totally on your own. So you better be prepared to have to deal with that situation. I think the next thing that we need to think about is how important redundancy is in our preparations. And what I mean by redundancy is have more than one plan. If your plan is, hey, I've got all my stuff here at the house, I'm going to stay put, and I'm good. What happens when your house collapses? What happens when a tornado rips the roof off of it and destroys all the walls? What happens when an earthquake makes it collapse? What happens when there's an ice storm and that ice storm collapses the roof of your home because it got four inches thick? What happens in any situation where the plan that you originally had is no longer valid? Should all your preps be in one place? I see these videos that the media likes to do because they, you know, because they like to portray us as crazy, and they always try to find the person with the biggest pantry possible and the most food possible. They have all this food stacked in one place, and I just sit there and I look at that and go, I wonder if these people have ever thought about what happens if something goes wrong in that spot and how they lose everything. And why haven't they broken this stuff up? When I had the reporter from Fort Worth Star here, she said, where's your big pile of food? I said, I can't show you a big pile of food. I don't have one. I can show you a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's not going to look like a lot individually because I've mitigated my risk. And it's not going to give you the picture you want for your story. I'm sorry, I can't do that for you because it's an in, it, it's an inconsistent way to be a survivalist. How can you be a survivalist if everything you're depending on is in one location? I also told her a lot of what we have is not even here. It's at a secondary location. This is why I'm big on a fallout location, a bug out location. And this is why I also think it may not have to be as far away as most of us think. Most of us that are of the, you know, the, the Cold War era that have in our head the Red Dawn scenarios and things like that think, man, I need to be way out there. And, and there's a place for that. I understand that. But the reality is that most of the disasters we were talking about today are relatively limited in scope. And if you had a place with a contingency, so in other words, if you live on the coast, maybe 100 miles, there's a lot of places 100 miles away where that storm could still affect it, but higher ground, certain structures that block uh, valleys, hills, what have you. There are ways to be with 100 to 200 miles away and have a relatively safe, secure area. And it doesn't have to be a fortification. It could be a condo in Austin. I sure as hell don't want that, but I would understand why somebody else might. So people that have two places to live have an inherent advantage in a disaster. They have a place to go. It's a hell of a lot better than a tent. And if nothing else, you have a piece of investment property. If you buy smart. The problem is most people that buy investment properties, with that in mind, don't buy smart. That's why I think the survivalist is more in tune and will tend to buy smart. But you must have redundancy in your preps. My wife asked me after after uh, the, the Haitian earthquake, well, what the hell would we do if our house collapsed? We'd lose everything that's in here. Maybe we could get some of it back, but most of it we couldn't. I said, we'd leave. We'd go to Arkansas. She goes, what if that collapsed? I said, well, we have what's here. If we have either situation, 
Now we can rely on the things that, that, that smart, intelligent people do financially all the time. Insurance and cash reserves. And we can fix it. But if we only have one place, now we're displaced. We're doubling up with family if they're not affected too since they all live close. We're in a shelter. We're in a tent. I don't want that. That's why I believe in redundancy. It's much, now look, don't go out and put yourself into massive debt to buy a second location because I said so. You do these things in time as they fit, but it's why it's a priority for me. The next one is, and I talk about this often, but I want to reinforce it today. The disaster is never the big problem. The aftermath is. The disaster itself will often kill or injure quite a few people. But it's always small in comparison to what's left behind. The worst in Katrina wasn't the storm itself. It wasn't the flooding. It was the way people reacted to it. Right now, the hardship in Haiti is the lack of systems of support that the earthquake has created. Even though with a few aftershocks, the earthquake is gone. It's occurred. It's done its damage. If you weren't crushed under a building in the earthquake, you walked away and you breathed and you were physically okay. But now you're dealing with the bigger situation. When Hurricane Andrew struck, it was it was a disaster. Honestly, folks, Hurricane Andrew was so much bigger of a physical damage-causing storm than Katrina. It's hard to understand how bad South Florida was from Andrew. But the bigger problem was the looters that went around trying to steal after Andrew. Now, fortunately, in Florida. The Florida state government had a different attitude about somebody that went up on the roof with a gun than they did in Louisiana. They thought the guy with the gun on the roof in Florida was part of the peacekeeping force. And as long as he was doing things legally, he was allowed to stay up there with his gun. And that is what kept Andrew from breaking down. Law-abiding citizens with guns. It's a big part of what put the L.A. riots back together. You know, it was the Korean guy with the SKS that said, you're not tearing my laundry apart. That's a big part of what got that thing back in, under control. Citizens. That's a unique advantage we have here in the United States. That's why I don't want to lose it. But please understand that it is really the way people react after the disaster that creates the biggest tragedies in these disasters. It's important that we get that. The next thing is, it doesn't really matter what the cause of the disaster is. It doesn't matter if it's a hurricane. It doesn't matter if it's an earthquake. It, it really doesn't matter. Because of the last point, it really always comes down to a situation where we're dealing with it's the systems of support that are gone that are the real problem. So when you're planning, you don't need to worry so much about, well, I'm more threatened by ice storms than a flood or whatever. I mean, you do need to think about that. But the reality is those are the acute preparations. Those are the things like where you build your house, the structure of your home, you know, and, and the different uh, evacuation plans that you have. But when it comes to dealing with the aftermath, you only have to focus on something we've already talked about, food, water, shelter, medical supplies. And when I say shelter, I'm talking about things like heating or cooling. If you're in South Texas and the electricity's out and you have an infant in the house, you better damn well have a generator at least capable of running a window unit because the heat can kill an infant in that environment, especially the way our homes are built today. They're not built to be efficient without air conditioning. They're not built to be efficient in the way that they allow air to flow through them. Where Conversely, if you live in northern Idaho, you better have an alternative means of heating 
Or you and your family could freeze to death or at least be miserable. So I put climate control into that shelter category. That's part of shelter. But if you have that, then you're, you're well suited to deal without systems of support. I think another thing, and, and this is bigger than beer, it's just an example, but we need to understand that money can become worthless overnight and beer can become a currency. Um, Johnny Max said that while the, you know, aftermath of the couple hurricanes he's dealt with down there in the Houston area, if you offered somebody 20 bucks to, to help clear off your driveway, they probably didn't even need the money, but they tell you, well, I gotta do this one and that one and I've already said, and I'll get to it. But if you whipped out a six pack of Miller Light or Johnny's Good Home Brew, people were beating the, beating the feet to, to come help you first because they couldn't get that. That could have been anything. It could have been a two liter bottle of Pepsi. The very things that we prepare with become currencies for barter in these situations. And I don't see a problem with saying, hey, you need help, I need help. Right? I'll give you some food, but I need you to do something. That's one way to control how many people you help, by offering to help those who are willing to do something in return. So I I think we need to remember that. And while I'm big on silver and alternative investments, short term in these acute disasters, they'll be worthless as well. I get that objection all the time. Well, silver will be worthless when a shit hit the fan. No, silver will be worthless at the beginning of a shit hit the fan, just like money will. Because what good is money if I don't eat today? But as people rebuild, if we have an economic collapse, then silver is a store of value. See, it's all about redundancy. There is no, to cliche it, silver bullet. There's no one answer. There's no just buy silver, everything will be okay. No. There's no just store food and everything will be okay. No. It has to be a holistic approach, a lifestyle choice. That's why I talk about fitting it into your lifestyle in a way that improves your your standard of living no matter what happens. If everything goes right, you're better off. If everything goes wrong, you're better off. And anything in between, you're better off. The next thing we need to take away from all these disasters is that free societies are vulnerable. We should realize if a city like New Orleans or Miami or Los Angeles can be brought to its knees so easily by disrupting just a few systems of support that an organized attack on this nation or any other free society could do the same nationwide. Let me ask you just a crazy-ass question. What if a group of terrorists got together, let's say 200 guys, terrorists of any stripe, doesn't matter if they're domestic or international, doesn't matter, and all of them went out and got a high-powered rifle. None of them shot a single person. All that they did was go around for as long as they could get away with it, shooting electrical transformers. How much damage could they do? Think about how much damage the DC sniper did. It was one guy and a kid shooting people out of a car. How much panic that instilled in the DC and and North Virginia area. One guy. What about 200? Attacking our infrastructure. How much damage could that do? How many other places are we vulnerable? What if terrorists did get a hold of 10 nuclear bombs and set one off in 10 major United States cities simultaneously? What if they did something that in actuality would be worse? They set off five today and five the next day. They managed to pull that off. 
to put the fear in people of what's next. We really need to understand that our liberty comes at a price. The more liberty we have, the more susceptibility to danger that we have. But we also have to understand that it's worth the price. I would rather be a free man in a society that's vulnerable than a slave in a society that's safe. And even slavery won't make us safe. So liberty cannot be sacrificed for safety. I think one of our founders told us that a long time ago. Please take that to heart. But understand the price you pay for liberty is vulnerability. And that makes it up to you as the individual to take the liberty and see it as the blessing that it is and realize the costs that it comes with. To quote a cliche, freedom isn't free. has more than one meaning. Freedom isn't free isn't just about the soldier that fights for his home in a foreign land. Freedom isn't free means that you as an individual, your freedom has a price for you too. And in many ways, that price is your susceptibility to danger. To understand the price, why it's worth the price, and to take individual responsibility. Please take that away from these big disasters. No one in the media is going to tell you this stuff. Nobody's going to be this point blank and honest with you about these things. No one's, no one in our government or our media wants to tell you the crap that happens to Florida can affect you in Idaho. But it sure as hell can. I'll be honest with you about that. I've examined this stuff. I've been, I've been doing nothing but this now for almost two years. And I'm telling you, this is what I've learned. And I want you in touch with it. That's the next point. What happens elsewhere can affect you. Do you know how much damage was done to our economy from Hurricane Katrina? From 9-11? I don't think people were in touch with how much damage was done to our economy from, from uh, Hurricane Andrew in Miami. Tropical Storm Faye in Jacksonville, Florida that nobody even talked about. Because it didn't blow things over. All it did was stall and rain for days and days and days and days. And flooded millions of people. But there wasn't a good sexy media story there. So that, that misery went undiscussed by our media. Jacksonville is a major port. Don't think it didn't affect you. A lot of times you don't even realize how much these things affect you. Because you look at it and you blame your local or your national politician. And he gets a lot of blame, folks. But a lot of things are way out of their control. They're not as competent or as effective as we'd like to believe. A lot of times things happen and we don't even realize the consequences. I would submit to you, that some of the problems that we have today are at least still being agitated in a way by some of these most recent disasters. The financial damages that they did. Because when you have something that's 1% weakened, it doesn't really affect it if everything's going well. But when things start to fall apart, that 1% becomes critical. And a lot of companies and a lot of societies and a lot of things that are out there are hurting more today from what happened eight years ago being agitated by what's happened recently. I think you better also learn from these disasters that man can cause disaster too. That we just went through a big disaster, the housing crash. You look at how many billions of dollars were lost in Hurricane Katrina from the storm, and then tell me how many billions of dollars were lost from the market crash and the housing bubble that was created. The housing bubble cost more money than Hurricane Katrina, period. 
and probably any hurricane that's ever hit anywhere in the world. Man caused that one. So what other people do does affect you, whether you want to admit it or not. And that means that it can happen where you live. These are not just stories from around the world that affect other people. It can happen right in your backyard. I don't care where you live. Something terrible can happen. I don't say that to be a doubter. I say that to put you in touch with reality. Your preparations are important. I want you today to look beyond yourself. Look at your children, your spouse, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, and understand that in a critical situation, you may be the only one that ever takes this seriously. Despite your efforts, they may never listen to you. Do what needs to be done anyway. Be prepared anyway. And hopefully, you'll get the opportunity to be an evangelist from a small event. And maybe they'll learn from that. And if they don't, keep on doing what you've got to do. Those people are worth it. You're worth it. And you may have to rely on yourself. In fact, there's fairly good odds that at some point in a disaster, for at least some period of time, you will be on your own. It could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a month. We really don't know. But be prepared to go at least a month. I mean that. And that really brings me to my final point today. And the thing that I want to leave you with, that hopefully, despite all the doubter stuff we talked about today, because once in a while we have to get real. We have to stand in the face of the storm. We have to look at the dark clouds. We have to go, that shit is dangerous. Those of you who don't like me cussing, I'm sorry. I have to be real on some level. And to call a storm that destroys a city that shit is an understatement. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry. You better get in touch with reality. And sometimes we have to stand and we have to stare right into this shit. And we have to say, you know what? I can stand up to this. I can do something about this. This won't take me out. I won't let this tear my family apart. I won't let this destroy the thing that's most important. My knowledge that what I do does matter. From talking to people that are oncologists to deal with cancer patients, all the way up to first responders who have dealt with critical situations. And I've spoken to all of those people since beginning this journey that we call the Survival Podcast. I've learned one critical thing that's common to every person that survives when they should not have. When the odds were totally against them, and somehow, somehow they came out the other side. Whether they were stranded on a mountaintop, or under the rubble of a building, or dealing with a disease. The people that say, what I do matters. I will act. I will do something. I will take control. They're the ones that make it. And the key is, they're the ones that make it when anybody on the outside goes, they they shouldn't have made it. Sometimes they make mistakes along the way, but they don't quit. I want you to have that in your heart, and I want you to bring preparedness with it. Because a lot of those stories, if the person had been better prepared, then their actions would have been a lot more logical. Maybe a lot less pain would have went along with it. And they would have got less, you know, they would have got as close to the abyss. But by God, you have to know what you do matters. You have to know that no one may ever come to help you. And you might have to get yourself out of whatever shit you're in. Cut and dry. 
But that shouldn't scare you. That shouldn't terrify you. That should make you huddle in a little quivering jello blob. It should make you strong. It should make you realize your destiny is not in the hands of buffoons in Washington that can't get their ass out of their own way. It should make you realize that your destiny is not in the hands of some scumbag that lives less than a mile from you that will switch into scumbag mode the minute he can get away with it. It should make you realize that even though most of the people around you aren't prepared, you can be a positive force no matter how bad the situation gets. It should make you realize that you control your own destiny and that you have no excuses ever, ever. You might have reasons sometimes. If you're in bed and your house collapses on you die, I'll say that's not an excuse, it's a reason. But as long as you're breathing, as long as you can move, you can do something, and you have no excuse to ever not act. We had a saying in the military that we were taught as we moved into leadership positions, even as small as a squad leader, a temporary squad leader position. Your men will not follow you and do not follow you so that you will do nothing. They follow you so that when you get to a position where a decision must be made, they know that you will act. You will make a decision and you will move forward. And if you will do that when you make mistakes, if you will be honest about the mistake, if you will evaluate the mistake, and if you will immediately correct it and make a new decision, they will follow you to the ends of the world while gunfire blasts over your head. But if you cease, if you cease to act for a second, you will lose the people that are supposed to follow you. And generally what will happen is within the ranks of those, the true leader will rise, push you to the side, and take over. Well, folks, in your life you can't afford that. Because you're not out with a military squad or a platoon. Where there's a whole bunch of people that were trained to think that way. You may be the only one. You have no excuses, but you have power. Prepare, plan, and be ready for whatever comes your way. And live your life not in fear, but with an understanding that as bad as things can get, as long as you're breathing, you can make a difference. You do that, it will change every aspect of your life, day to day, and how you interact with people, and what your success levels are. It is that critical. It is that true. This is intrinsic to human beings. And it's all about making sure that whatever goes wrong, you're there to help the people you care about the most. Do that, and I promise you, even if nothing ever goes wrong, you will never, for one second in your life, down to the last moments on your deathbed, you will never regret it. But if you don't act, if you don't plan, if you don't think, and if you don't have that attitude that I'll take care of the people around me, and one thing goes wrong, I promise you, you will know the sour taste of regret. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough. Or even if they Makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 